This morning, congregation, we would turn your attention to the Word of God, more specifically to Galatians chapter 4. We want to read from verse 1 through 7, but then focus our attention especially upon verses 4 and 5 as the text for this morning's sermon. So we read from the inspired Word of God this morning from Galatians chapter 4. And we'll begin reading at verse 1, and we'll continue through verse 7. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And again, we turn our attention especially to verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning as we continue, but also as we move towards a conclusion of our Advent series, we anticipate Uh, Two more sermons in this Advent series. We've been considering the incarnation or the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ specifically for a number of weeks now. But as we continue and as we begin to draw to a conclusion this Advent series, this morning my great desire is that we might be reminded of the wonder of the incarnation. Because there is a danger that we become so familiar with the Incarnation, that we become so used to the Christmas story, as, as some call it, that we become so accustomed to hearing sermons and to going through all of the activities that mark this time of year, that we lose something of the absolute wonder of God's majestic grace in the Incarnation. And so we hope to emphasize that this is an event that ought to create a wonder within our souls. uh, That this is an event that ought to transform our very persons. When we rightly understand what it is that takes place in the Incarnation, then there ought to be this sense of profound wonder as we behold with the eyes of faith through the testimony of the Word of God. The reality that God was manifested in the flesh. And so by way of introduction, I would just ask you a personal question as I also put this question before myself. Do we stand amazed with humble, profound appreciation that God was manifested in the flesh? When we come to consider the Advent time of year and the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, do we recognize that here we stand upon holy ground? And is our spiritual action something similar to that of Moses as he approached the burning bush? As he made haste and fell down and worshipped the Lord his God? 
It is my desire that as a congregation, and perhaps by extension, as we as a congregation live in the midst of this community, it is my desire that we would have a renewed, perhaps, sense of that holy wonder. And that we would respond appropriately with worship. And so this morning we want to turn our attention to Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, and consider this section of God's Word under this theme, the reason for the Incarnation. And a word of explanation behind this theme and behind this text selection. You and I need to know and we need to understand not only the fact that Jesus Christ did come into the world, certainly we must know that and we must understand that Jesus Christ came in the world. We must understand the Incarnation. But to properly understand the Incarnation... You and I, and we as a congregation, we must know why Jesus Christ came into the world. And our text very simply and very pointedly gives the explanation for the Incarnation. So we'll notice the reason, first of all, seen in its source, secondly, seen in its action, and then third, seen in its purpose. So the reason for the Incarnation, its source, its action, and its purpose. And here again, very Admittedly, we simply follow the text. Something that's always good and wise to do. So first of all, the reason for the incarnation is seen in its source. If you look at verse 4, it states there, but when the fullness of the time had come, God. Now boys and girls, remember how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God. There is something of a Mirror statement here in Galatians 4, verse 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His only begotten Son. So the advent, or the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, or the work of salvation, or indeed all things, have as their primary focus not man, not even man's needs, Certainly not man's wants and desires. We must constantly be on guard against a humanistic understanding or misunderstanding of the revelation of the Word of God. The emphasis is always upon God. Who God is and what God has done. And Galatians 4 verse 4 reminds us that the reason for the incarnation is bound up in that which God does. He is the primary subject of our text. Uh, what do we understand by God? God is a name given to Himself by God Himself. And the name God, it is a means of His self-revelation. And it is through that self-revelation that we are to derive our knowledge and our understanding of who God is. The name God emphasizes that He is the High and He is the Almighty One. And a theological, philosophical word that we use is the Transcendent One. To understand the transcendence of God, I think one of the most helpful passages to think of is Isaiah 6, where Isaiah, through a vision, sees God. He sees God high and lifted up. Surrounded by angels of pure, unadulterated light. But those angels, even though they are holy and pure, they must cover their eyes in the presence of God because of His infinite majesty and glory. And Isaiah cries out as he contemplates and as he looks upon 
the majesty of God, he cries out, Woe am I, for I am undone. I am an unclean man. And this is a truth that we must constantly emphasize, but especially in our day, when many also in the broader church have lost an awareness of the holiness and of the majesty and of the sovereignty of the transcendence of the one and only true God. But when the fullness of time had come, God. And so the Advent begins and ends with God. Theology begins and ends with God. The Christian life begins and ends with God. And so the Christian congregation must begin and end with God. God sent. God sent. But what did He send? God sent His only begotten Son. The motive behind the theological source is entirely the love of God. And if you want to think of the attribute of the love of God, you could, of course, quickly combine in there the grace and the mercy of God. God willed the incarnation. That is, God willed that the second person of the Trinity would, in the fullness of time, assume a very real human nature. But God willed it, and that is the only motivating factor behind the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this here is a testimony, yes, to the sovereign, transcendent nature of God, but also to His imminent grace and mercy. He is not merely a God who is far off and distant, but He is the God who has willed that His only begotten Son would be sent, would be sent into the world, would be sent to save sinners. And that's the delegated source in our first point, the second sub-point, sent forth. The word sent forth, uh, is, it's a technical term. Sent forth, boys and girls, it doesn't mean to just go wander somewhere. You know, maybe in the summertime, not so much now, but maybe you, you go to the park and you just kind of walk around, you just wander around. Or, or, or maybe you're outside in the backyard and you're bored, you think, wow, what do you want to do? And so you go here, or you go there, you, you pick up this game, you, you go do that activity. That's not the idea here of being sent forth. To be sent forth has this understanding of being officially, formally delegated to go and to accomplish a particular purpose. Respectfully speaking, the Father did not say to the Son, go wander around down on earth. And go wander around in the midst of humanity. But in the eternal decree, the Father determined that the Son, and the Son was in full agreement as was the Holy Spirit, that the Son would come for a specific purpose. And so the Father delegated the Son, sent forth in the fullness of time, when all of the prophecies of the Old Testament had come to that point in which they would be realized, uh, when the world stage was just perfectly orchestrated according to the eternal decrees of God, when the fullness of time had come, when there had been the development to the point of maturation of the Old Testament, at that exact moment underneath the divine act of providence, Jesus Christ was incarnate. Jesus Christ. 
the Father sent the Son. The Son whom He loved. And what this ought to do, congregation, this ought to begin to stir within our souls a deep, profound sense of appreciation for what our God has done in the Incarnation. You see, it is certainly, the Incarnation is certainly about a child in a manger. But whenever we contemplate a child in a manger, behind the child in the manger, we must see God sending forth His only begotten Son for a particular and a specific purpose, which we can begin to understand in a bit more fullness in our second point. So the reason for the Incarnation seen in its action. What exactly took place in the Incarnation? The eternal Son of God, being co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential with the Father and the Spirit, took unto Himself, without any impact upon the divine nature, without any change to the divine nature, without any alteration to the divine nature. So you can say it this way, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, remained that which He always was, divine, but also became that which He had not yet been. By taking a very real human nature, underneath the work, the supernatural, the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit, upon the womb of the Virgin Mary, without the involvement of a human biological father, there was the production, if we can call it that, of a very real human nature, body and soul. And that in what theologians call the hypostatic union, at the moment that conception took place, again by the work of the Holy Spirit upon the Virgin Mary, there was this very real human nature, body and soul, that was united to the divine nature. And these two natures remain distinct. The divine remains the divine. The human remains the human. But now they are united together in the one person of the Lord Jesus Christ perpetually united together. So when we think of who Jesus Christ is, and that thought has to be at the very essence of our Christian life, because what is Christianity other than a following after the Lord Jesus Christ? When we think of who Jesus Christ is, He is the eternal Son of God who in the fullness of time became one of us. In all points, like us, sin accepted. And all of that understanding is not just for some archaic theological bookshelf or some far-off seminary classroom. All of that understanding is behind and in and with the statement in John 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh. And the Word became flesh. Because God sent forth His Son, the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. What glory? The glory of an undefined, unexplained, ununderstood baby in a manger, born perhaps into abject poverty. We understand that these things sadly happen all the time. No, there's something more in that manger scene. God sent forth His Son so that the eternal Son of God remained fully divine, but also became fully human. That's what took place. 
through the Incarnation. And this, of course, is unique to Christianity. A word especially to the young people. You and we've been talking about this in our youth group. Now, all of us live in a pluralistic society, but you young people are going to be confronted especially with the pluralism of our society, a pluralism that says there are many religions, and a pluralism that then goes on and says there are many religions of equal validity. All truth, all religions. That's the the popular message of our culture. And I would desire that all of us would know, but especially young people, whether you're in college or beginning your career, whether you're in high school or middle school, there is something very different about Christianity. Something unique about Christianity. Or you could say it this way, the Christian faith has something no other faith or religion has. It's a Savior. It's Jesus Christ incarnate. It's the combination of the divine nature and the human nature in one person. You can study every other world religion. You will never find God dwelling among us. Taking our nature unto Himself. This is what is distinct about Christianity and this is what is so glorious about Christianity. This is the wonder of the Incarnation that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His only begotten Son to be born of a woman. To be born under the law. Now you will read other religions have their myths and fables of the gods coming somehow to dwell among humanity. But no other religion has God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we rightly understand it, coming under the law. So yes, certainly the eternal Son of God assumed our humanity, but He did so in submission to the law. And so again, we're just simply following the text here. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Well, what exactly does that mean? Well, within the confines of the time allotted to us, we simply say it this way, that Jesus was incarnate, that Jesus was born underneath the requirements, underneath the demands of the moral law. So the lawgiver, God Himself, subjects Himself to the requirements of the law. The law that in what is often called, and we'll consider more of this this evening, and so we encourage your attendance and uh, your attention also to what we'll say this evening, Lord willing, in what many call the covenant of works, that original covenantal structure, Adam, as the representative of humanity, was placed underneath these obligations, these moral requirements, that if he was going to have fellowship with a holy God, that he had to keep the commandments of God. The commandment of life, especially as it was compressed, so to speak, uh, on the forbidding eating of the tree of life. Those requirements were now placed upon Jesus Christ. 
So He brought Himself even underneath the obligation of circumcision. And so He undergoes that ritual. And in what theologians describe as the act of obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ, He not in any way that He had to earn the favor of His Father. He is the eternal Son of God in whom the Father forever delights. But the Lord Jesus Christ humbled Himself to the point in which He took the the impossibly heavy burden of the law upon His shoulders. So He says, I have come to do the will of My Father. And He fulfills those commandments perfectly during the entirety of His life for those whom He came to save. And this is one of the most liberating, and we'll get to that in a moment, the most liberating truths for the Christian. And I, and I pray that there's not a soul who hears these words who thinks they have to keep the law in order to obtain eternal life. Because that is an impossibility. And nothing will crush a soul faster or more thoroughly than thinking that I must keep every jot and tittle of the moral law in order to be accepted by God. And if anyone hears these words who thinks that you must do that, first of all, I want you to know it's an impossibility. You and I can never keep the law of God perfectly. We can never gain acceptance with God by keeping the law. But I also want each and every one of us to know that we do not have to because Christ has. Christ has kept every single jot and tittle of the law perfectly. Well, why? Because He was born of a woman. Because He was born under the law. And that brings us into our third point, its purpose. The purpose, Christ is born of a woman. That is, He assumes a real human nature. A human nature in a position of being subjected to the law of God. Notice what verse 5 says, to redeem those who were under the law. Boys and girls, a illustration. I don't know, have you ever tried to carry something really, really heavy? Too heavy for you. And, and and you just were at the point of exhaustion. You were, you were just ready to, to fall down maybe. And then perhaps an older brother or your dad, maybe your grandpa, came and, and lifted it up. I remember when I was a, a young boy uh, growing up on the farm, at times, you know, you'd try to carry a full five-gallon bucket of water. I had to and I'm not making these stories up. I had to go fill the, the chicken waterer. And it wasn't quite five gallons because I would fill the bucket up and then I'd splash half of it out by the time I got to the chicken waterer. But it was too heavy for me. And, and sometimes I'd be struggling with the bucket and along would come my grandpa who had, at that time in my eyes seemed to have near supernatural human strength. And he would easily lift the bucket. Lift it over the fence that I had to go over to get to the chicken waterer. Now that's a faint illustration. Jesus Christ was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. That burden that we cannot carry, the fulfillment of the holy requirements, Christ 
carry. To redeem us. The word redeem has this idea of setting someone free. Of bringing about liberation. And here again an analogy. And although uh, these individuals were very, very young when it took place, the liberation of the Netherlands upon the conclusion of World War II, the deliverance from that oppression, of that bondage, that's something of why Jesus Christ came. Not to bring political liberation, but to bring spiritual liberation. And the joy that those who were liberated felt within their very soul upon being delivered from the oppressive regime of the Nazi occupation pales in comparison to the joy which the Christian soul experiences knowing that they have been liberated. That they have been redeemed. That they have been set free from the curse of the law that is death. Not because of their own struggles with a bucket, so to speak, going back to the analogy that they cannot carry themselves, but because Christ has come incarnate and has lifted up that burden that we could not carry, that we could not bear. I often think that this is most wonderfully symbolized uh, with the horizontal crossbeam of the cross that had been prepared for the execution of Barabbas, the murderous thief. But He did not carry that horizontal crossbeam on that day of all days. But rather, the human shoulders of Jesus Christ, upheld by the divine nature, bore that horizontal crossbeam and carried it outside the city and there suffered in the agonizing death upon the cross and in the midst of the darkness as He experienced the torments of hell itself, He pronounced once and for all, it is finished. What is finished? The redemption of Christian souls. So that that burden that you and I can never, ever, ever carry has been carried and has been dealt with. And so there is this redemption. You can think of it, As it stated earlier in Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And be very clear, the curse of the law is death. The law says, do this or you die. Or if you want to flip it around, don't do this or you die. The curse of the law, death. Christ redeemed us from that curse. Because He died. He died as He bore this curse so that you and I might receive the adoption as sons. And this is in no way some type of male chauvinistic language. In this context, a daughter would not inherit anything legally. A son would have inherited all of the material goods of His Father. And that's the point here. Adoption is that wonderful activity whereby a person is given the legal status of belonging to a family with all of the rights and the privileges thereby included. And this is the amazing fact that through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
we have the status of the children of God. Of sons and of daughters of God. Not that we share in the divine nature. The divine always remains the divine. The human always remains the human. You and I are human. But being human, believing in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving the wonderful work of the Incarnation in true faith, there is a legal adoption whereby the Father, because of the work of the Elder Son, Jesus Christ adopts us to be sons and gives us all of the legal rights, including especially the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And that is what is meant, uh, of course, uh, by this adoption as sons, because as verse 6 and 7 uh, brings out, you are no longer a slave underneath the curse of the law, but now a son. So why the Incarnation? So that those who were not sons or daughters could become sons and daughters. And so something of the wonder of the Incarnation as it is seen in a closing word of application. I ask this question lovingly and yet pointedly. Are you amazed by the Incarnation. Are you amazed at this statement of Scripture? Does your heart, your very soul, embrace this truth with knowledge and with conviction? Do you know that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem redeem you to redeem me if these words find the ears of anyone who does not believe on the lord jesus christ i need to lovingly tell you you are under condemnation and i plead with you don't try to earn your way into heaven don't try to pick up something that is infinitely more heavy than you can carry don't go to the law Don't think perhaps, well, in the new year I'm going to do a little bit more of this and not so much of that and somehow I'm going to appease the Heavenly Father and I'm going to gain eternal life. Don't go to the law, but go to the One who is incarnate. Incarnate to be under the law. To redeem sinners. Go to Jesus Christ. And the personal exercise of faith If you're 8, 18, 38, 88, go to Him in the act of faith. Say, here I am a sinner, but I know that you were born to redeem sinners such as I am. And having then obtained redemption, let us glorify our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the wonder of of the Incarnation. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do glorify Your name as we reflect again this morning upon the wonderful work of salvation which You have accomplished in Your sovereignty, in Your love, in Your grace, and in Your mercy. We pray, Lord, that we would have a clearer understanding of the Incarnation and also a faith that embraces the Christ of the Incarnation and that our souls might be comforted 
that we might glorify your most holy name. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.